So please come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable or at ease. It's particularly full tonight, Lama Surya. It's your fault. (laughs) Ah. Since the subject tonight is uh, wise effort, Jack, I just wanted to appreciate the wise efforts that you've made in the 60s and 70s and 80s as a monk in the East, as a pioneer Buddhist teacher founding centers in the East Coast and the West Coast, and as a parent modeling bringing Dharma into the Western way of life. So I think in terms of uh, wise effort, balanced effort, right effort, Etc. All the impeccable kinds of effort. I just want to appreciate and what an inspiration you are to all of us, really. Thank you. Well, while I was busy working to make the Meditation Center in Massachusetts work for people and out here, you were still in retreat. You were making that effort of nine years of sitting. Um, a to, slow learner. To become a lama. <laughs> I hope that it helped. <laughs> so when, when uh, Siri and I talked earlier about a topic for tonight and sort of envisioned the conversation and some presentation of a number of topics that I suggested, um, uh, Surya... Um, selected um, wise effort, or sometimes it's called right effort, um, as something that's really useful uh, to regularly speak about in practice. And so we agreed we'd each talk for 10 or 15 minutes if we can't talk for 10, um, and then take some time for questions. Some of us will have to make the effort to talk less. In my case, I don't know about you, Surya. So again, let yourself sit comfortably and we'll speak a bit. Um, And wise effort or right effort is part of the Buddha's path of awakening, the um, eightfold path. It's called the Samawirya. Um, And I just like to reflect about effort and energy in meditation and in spiritual life for a bit together. Um, We come to meditate to a Buddhist um, retreat or a class or to some spiritual center um, for some motivation. And the motivation can change, but it's helpful to pay attention to that motivation, to consider it or be aware of it. Sometimes it's to become more peaceful if our life is frantic as can happen. Sometimes it's for healing or to learn compassion. Sometimes it's for companionship, for uh, spiritual friendship or out of our loneliness. Sometimes it's for inspiration or uh, to connect with something greater. Because today is also Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, I'd like to begin by quoting him. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. So that's his motivation. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, as if we could succeed in doing that. Has anybody succeeded in that? (laughs) Raise your hand. The end of life is to do the will of God, to, to act in a divine or sacred way, come what may. This he talked about is really his his own statement of life as he would wake up each morning. May I live in truth. May I act according to this um, which is sacred or divine. Um, And to come into Buddhist practice 
the Buddha would say, of all the many traditions and practices and ways of teaching that are offered in the Buddhist path, the center of them is the possibility of awakening, of freedom, of what's called the sure heart's release, of this capacity to live in a free way in this human life. Now often in spiritual life, the, the first sense of effort, of wise effort, is to change ourselves. You know, we look, we sit in meditation and we see how much we think and worry and plan and obsess and or to change our bodies, you know, I don't like the way I look, or to change our emotions, I don't like these emotions, these are good ones and these are bad emotions, you know, and if I jog enough and I go to the gym and I get massages and I, you know, go to enough meditation retreats and have enough therapy and so forth, I can fix myself. Do you know that kind of motivation from the place of trying to make it all better, and especially to fix your mind. When you look at it, it's pretty messy, um, most people. But I remember one person coming on retreat who'd been sitting for uh, almost a month in retreat, and he said, for a long time I was trying to stop my thoughts or make them better thoughts and so forth. He said, and finally it feels like I'm just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know? <laughs> And that there's some bigger thing to pay attention to than all these thoughts that come marching through, which is my life. Mm. So the idea is somehow that we're going to change ourselves. And there's the Zen story of the student coming into the Zen master in the temple the first time and demanding, you know, I want to come here and practice and get enlightened. And if I, if I practice, how long will it take for me to get enlightened? And the Zen master looked back said, someone like you, probably 10 years. And he said, but what if I practice really hard? And he said, oh, 20 years. He said, but why did you double it, you know? Why, I mean, why would it take me 20 years? He said, well, probably 30 in your case. So you can hear that striving for, to, to be something that gets in the way. Or the notion that someone else will change us if we come to see the Dalai Lama or you know, some great master or um, whatever, that, that somehow we'll get it from someone else, we'll catch enlightenment, kind of like a cold, I guess, or something, you know. It's like the story I heard of somebody who walked into the bookstore, like a, a big one, like Borders, you know, and went up to the information counter and said, um, can you please tell me where the self-help section is? And the person replied, I'm sorry, that would kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, so if we're not going to change ourselves and we're not going to try and get somebody else to change us, then what is wise effort in spiritual practice? One piece of wise effort would be to turn the cooling system off, I think. Um, if you stand up, whoever's there, um, there's a, a row of a number of switches, and if you take the second switch and move it, um, I guess down or up, the second of those switches, <laughs> whatever direction is the opposite of what it is, that might turn it off. Okay, I think we're cool enough. There, is, there are many kinds of effort, self-improvement, trying to become peaceful, all of that, but there's a deeper effort which is really uh, the effort to know the world for what it is, to pay attention and allow the sense of grace or mystery or that which has brought us into life that is here to reveal itself. And in that sense, this wise effort is not so much to change ourselves, but it's kind of a shift of identity, to move from the small sense of self, from what's called the body of fear, which has blame and judgment and lack of forgiveness, which lives under what Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, Tibetan Lama, called the bureaucracy of ego. <laughs> kind of that great bureaucrat that's trying to control everything. To a place of trust um, and of presence in all things that are here. To open the mind and maybe quite deeply to trust the heart itself, that we have the capacity as a human being, our own Buddha nature, gives us the capacity to be present for all of life, 
for pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and the truth of impermanence that we can't grasp things and the freedom that comes when we really accept that. Again, from Martin Luther King, Jr., he said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. So we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom as well. That spirit of the capacity of the heart to move through this human realm and all that's given to us with an openness and a wisdom and a freedom. And this shift of identity um, requires a very deep compassion. The effort isn't the effort to make things, but to see somehow, to see from the heart. Imagine walking along a sidewalk. This is a, a, a commentary from a friend of ours, Alan Wallace. With your arms full of groceries, and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn all over the ground. And as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to yell, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our common situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is ignorance, we can open the door of wisdom and compassion. We do all these things to one another, but it's through not seeing, not understanding the basic principles of life and knowing what brings freedom. So in that sense, wise effort is that to know, to see, to feel when we're caught, when we're asleep, when we're attached or frightened, and to remember, to reawaken, to touch that other, what Ajahn Jamnian, my teacher who comes here often, speaks of as that timeless ground of being, our true nature, that to rest in that openness. And it's not to get something, but rather to trust, to rest in what's so. Krishnamurti put it this way, he said, when the mind is at rest, neither seeking nor resisting a single thing, not struggling with life, then, and only then, is it possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, and not our efforts to be free. It's seeing or feeling or sensing directly how things are, and making our peace with them, opening to them. And in meditation, in the formal meditation, we begin in a sense with the easy things, feel our breath, be aware of our body, of the play of emotions, of the mind, and how it works, and all the stories we get caught in make us angry or frightened and so forth. We all have those stories. There's a kind of gentleness in the beginning. But it's not just that. I don't want to say that wise effort is only gentle. It's also ferocious or fierce in a certain way. And there's a dimension of it that is a kind of initiation that's asked of us. Because sometimes you could say, well, it's just opening to what is, la la la. <laughs> but, I mean, you did two three-year retreats, and you warm up at the three-year retreats with a hundred thousand prostrations, is that right? Each time, you know, and a hundred thousand mandala offerings and visualizations, and, and I, I mean, maybe you've done two hundred or three or four hundred thousand, you know, and then you sit and you don't move for hours and hours, and there's a passion as well as a patience, um, a kind of initiation. And the initiation, whether it's in meditation or through a meditative awareness of our parenting or work or the death of our, you know, of the elders in our family or something, 
is to find that place of fearlessness and presence or openness of being in the midst of it all. And that asks a lot of us. We begin simply, but then we have to go down to the depths of it. And the effort that's asked is to be present with body and mind and heart. With some balance, the image from the Buddha is of a lute string where the strings are not too tight and they're not too loose, but rather that which allows the music to come. There's a music in each moment that might be sadness or loss or excitement or longing when we can allow the music and be the space for that music. It's really the effort that has a balance to it, what would allow us to be present and free in this moment. And there's a yoga teacher I know that captured this in the middle of a class one time teaching these yoga postures. She stopped in the middle and she said, okay, you strivers, relax. (laughs) And you sensualists, sit up a little bit more. Can you hear that? The strivers relax and the sensualists sit up. So it's not like there's one effort or one cookie cutter model, but it's what does it take in this moment to open, to really be present, to be free. And then there's this great irony that comes. Ramana Maharshi put it this way. He said, there's no no greater joke than this, that being reality ourselves, we seek to gain reality. We think that there's something binding our reality and that it must be destroyed before reality is gained. It is ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will yourself laugh at your efforts. That which is on the day of laughter is also here just now. So that's the grace of opening to this truth, knowing that we can open, and yet being willing in some way to find the effort through the places that we contract or frighten, to find that fearless place that says, yes, again and again, this life, And that place of freedom is here to be known. Swaha. Thank you. I was making an effort to recall something that Martin Luther King Jr. said that impressed me um, once. He said, I am not free until all are free. And that really struck me. In fact, the effort of the Bodhisattva, the awakening spiritual hero on the Dharma path, is really in that direction. It's a matter of great courage, actually. One of the translations of the word, Sanskrit word for effort, vidya, is courage. As Jack said, effort can also be ferocious. We say fearless effort. Well, courage, or like inspiration, passion, inspiration really, and, and courage to take on this vast undertaking. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like so arrogant, in fact, to take on this vast undertaking. And yet we must when we recognize the interconnectedness of all that lives. And that the vastness actually helps lift us, doesn't burden us. So when we talk about effort, and as Jack has so eloquently described, the various kinds of effort, right effort, appropriate effort, balanced effort, not just striving muscularly to climb Mount Everest, but also the soaring grace of the eagle or the poise of the hummingbird, that's also a balanced effort in meditation or in life, in finding our own way and being centered and one with that in any particular step of the way. So when I think of wise effort and my own striving and ambition on one hand, and on the other hand, laziness and complacence, it makes me laugh at the absurdity of fighting with either. Because in fact, they're sort of in balance. (laughs) Balance. They come and go, and I continue on. And the more I can enjoy that balance, the better my inner gyroscope is operating so that I really can enjoy my way, travel my way in my own way, which is the way, the only way. 
We will hear about the only way. I think we need to find that only way. Not somebody else's only way, however. That's the challenge. So therefore, I think that my effort, and perhaps I would uh, suggest it might be some other people's effort too, could be to find that, or travel that only way, which is our own authentic way, which is actually a way of being, not of doing. And being has its own logic about effort, doesn't it? Effortless being. Being is effortless. We're lost in the doings. That's the problem. How can we come home to being? What kind of effort would bring us back to where we are? That's the conundrum. That's the koan. That's the paradox. What kind of, what would be the right effort or the wise effort that can bring us back to that Achan Jamnian's timeless ground of being, that true nature that we are? How to become, how to make efforts to become what we are. That's the paradox, and that's the beauty of it, because the mind can't quite figure it out. So it requires something else, perhaps on the other side of the brain. Perhaps it'll surrender or trust. Not the effort to stand on tiptoe all the time, to stand above the crowd, or to climb to the top of the mountain, but also the trust to enjoy the ground, to rest on the ground in every step that we make and know that we can never stray from that. So when we talk about effort in the uh, Tibetan uh, Dzogchen tradition, for example, we think about the courage to be, to sort of come out of the closet as ourselves. That's where effort is directed, towards authenticity of being, not what we might achieve or transform into but what we already are and how to return more wholly to that. That's why it's a very, it's a path of direct access. We have direct access to this being anytime that we dare, that we're courageous enough, that we're passionate enough to settle into it. We are that being. There are many stories of the masters and their monumental efforts at many practices or many years in practice. But I think that the real challenge today is to do it here in our own life. I always laugh when people tell me, uh, talk about how many prostrations we did in our <laughs> monastery retreats or how many mantras we did or how many chants we memorized. Because in fact, and I tell you this truly, it's harder to practice every morning before you go to work than to practice when you're over in Asia in a three-year retreat or a monastery where everything is conspiring to help you do that. But if we can practice every day before we go to work, or when we come home, or whenever. And not only that, a little bit bringing it into every part of every day also, growing in through our workplace, growing through our relations, and so on. That's really the wise effort that I am thinking of call, we need to call forth today. Because that's where we live. That's where the rubber meets the road in daily life. That's where wise effort needs to be applied. How to make the workplace spiritually growthful? How to make parenting spiritually, spiritually growthful? How to make relationship spiritually growthful? <laughs> That's where the effort needs to be applied today. Not in counting up 100,000 Ave Marias or Omani Pemihungs or bows to the Buddha. So I feel when we talk about effort today, I like to think about the, how to call forth the passion that makes effort effortless. The passion that comes from interest, what Buddha called the interest factor or interest in the mind. How to find what's authentically our true calling so that it calls us constantly. So it's an effortless effort that never ends, that goes straight ahead for a million years. 
that doesn't just think how long is it going to take 10 years or 20 years or 10 lifetimes because well that's illusory anyway that way of thinking again the effort that can bring us back to our being which is timeless what kind of effort would that be that can help us become what we are so for homework I want to suggest and we're gonna have question and answers to make this practical I'd like to suggest that the effort we might apply is to look into ourselves and see what we're seeking. What is our burning question, really? What, you know, what brings us here tonight, for example? So that our efforts might be directed in the shortest possible way towards our, the fulfillment of our quest. Not rushing, striving as hard as we can, but perhaps not in quite the wise or the right direction, as in not the wise or right direction for oneself. Because the right or, right or wise direction for oneself includes all. Let's not get confused about that. So I think if we can make it very personal, again, I would exhort you, and this is kind of a rhetorical question, to look into what is the burning question? What really drives us or brings us here? What are we looking for? What's our motivation? Not say, oh, I should have a great motivation to save the world. What, the truth is, what is our motivation right now? What brought us here? What's bugging us? Let's make efforts to look into that. And I think then all will be revealed. So now I'd like to open the floor to questions. Uh, please ask us um, whatever do we, do we need to pass a microphone, Jack? I don't think so. Okay. We can just... would take a long time. Please feel free. It. Anything you ever wanted to ask about Dharma, but we're afraid to ask, <laughs> this is the chance. Ask the Lama. <laughs> um, I have a question and a difficulty in practical life. Actually, I really appreciate that you're talking about practical... Um, I'm struggling with my small self, my ego, and uh, with being spiritual, um, go beyond small self, and it's very difficult to have compassion for the both. Um, it's um, like confusing and whether I should contemplate and then feel into my small self and have compassion for it, um, especially when you're in a relationship. Um, what to do, have compassion for your small self and say, oh, I feel sorry for that little girl inside me, or go beyond it. I don't know if you can understand my question. So, um, what to do? Jack's married, you should ask him. <laughs> <laughs> the, but people who give advice are the ones who aren't married yet. <laughs> The rest of us know better. <laughs> Want to repeat the question? <clears throat> yes, I hope, I hope most people heard it because it's a little uh, complex. But in short, the, the apparent con conflict between the small self and the spiritual life or the transpersonal self or going beyond the ego especially through in relationships. I hope that summed up your question. So I, I would say, you know, in short, um, really to go right at it rather than give any advice, I think it's very important for me to recognize myself, that my small self or my own personal love or lust or desire is the tip of the iceberg of the divine love or the big so-called self, the not-self or the ground of being. So that's the way in. That's where we live, not to try to get rid of that. I, I, I detest hearing in the spiritual ghetto where I live how we have to slay the ego on the battlefield of the Dharma or something like that. I mean, poor ego. And we always say, we always say, that we have to grow up and have a healthy, individuated ego. You have to become somebody before you can become nobody. 
before you can transcend the ego. I think I'm probably quoting Jack Cornfield on that, but you know, just channeling here. <laughs> I get royalties later. <laughs> So you can cradle that, uh, you know, ego and its pain and anger and desire and low self-esteem and so on and love it even while we are growing more mature and beyond it. Uh, yeah, let me add in kind of in just another language to say the same thing, that um, in many people's journey there, there is a dimension, especially in the beginning for some years, that really is about healing, that there are ways in which we have hated ourselves or one another or, or been hurt in grave ways. And as we begin to pay attention inside, that surfaces. Um, and without compassion, the journey really can't happen. We go someplace else and we're not here. Um, but if it were just that healing, it also wouldn't be complete. Um, the healing is a peace, um, but that then has to lead us to the sense that um, allows us uh, our mindfulness or our awareness to shift from identifying and saying, well, this is who I am. I'm this three-year-old or this 12-year-old or whatever who was hurt in this way. If that's all you are, it's a very limited identity. And the teaching from the Buddha and the teaching of awareness is that we can see that and, in a respectful way, and also discover that that's not all of life, that that's not where freedom lies. So both of those are true and they both need uh, respect. Please. But see, along these lines, and when you, when you said that it, we have to develop an ego before we can go beyond it, um, what about those who have personality disorders where they haven't developed an ego and they're fused? And do you think, I wonder if you could talk to them, talk about that group uh, in relationship to the can you can you give an example it would help uh, to know from an example and what motivates your question somewhere where it comes from just to be more helpful in answering uh, it, it comes from I was reading a book called uh, I don't want to talk about it by Terence real the family therapist in Cambridge and what was in the book that well, raises the question point, it was talking about intimacy, and he was talking about how um, if the child doesn't individuate at a certain time in development, there may be no ego formation, and that that group of people, what that happens to is, is probably relatively small, but they differ from neurotics in a very important way. Are you asking this um, in a theoretical way, or do you also know someone like that? Just curious. I also know someone like that. Yeah. Um, could people hear her question? Yes? Okay. Let me say something to, to start with. Uh, two pieces. First, um, I'll quote Jane Goodall um, that I talked about a couple of months ago. Uh, I heard her recently at a conference on child development and um, she was speaking about chimpanzees and so forth, but really also talking about our inner development. And she said that um, for songbirds, if a, um, if a songbird like a finch is taken from its nest right after it's born and put with other birds to be raised then its own kind uh, for a month and, uh, and then return and doesn't hear its own song, if a songbird doesn't hear its own song mirrored back to it, around it, in the first month, then it will never again be able to sing its song. So it's a kind of an amazing thing. Um, and she used it to illustrate the importance of early, early development. Um, so you can feel the pain of that. If you're taken, if you're not given something very early, there's a kind of very deep wound, which is what you're talking about. The difference that needs to be pointed out is that if we didn't hear our song, and some of us didn't in graver or lesser ways, um, that often still it can be healed. Um, it, it takes respect and compassion and a kind of um, awareness, and often the wounds that are made in relationship need to be healed in relationship. So that's not something that happens just in meditation. It actually has to happen in relationship to another person who sees or bonds or connects with that person. 
Um, but one of the great teachings of spiritual life is that, um, that there can be a healing and a shift of identity, even with quite grave difficulties over time, from believing that's who we are to some other um, uh, opening or freedom or possibility. And so I just want to say that, and I'm, I'm really careful not to try to categorize people, even ones that I meet who have very great problems, um, to the extent that I would give up on them. Because I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Um, so that's part of an answer. I don't know if it's helpful. Do you have anything? I've just said um, that it's never too late, as you said, uh, and everything is workable. Of course, the question could be whether the kind of dharma you're thinking of is applicable to people with severe personality disorders or psychosis. Uh, I'm not sure that it is, but there is certainly some gate for them to enter or be blessed by. But even more so, you know, I remember Anandamayama, who was a great female saint of India. She, she was faced with uh, somebody like you described, Ananda, in India, who was um, severely, um, I, I don't remember exactly, because they were talking about it in Hindi, not in English, uh, retarded and um, kind of a, a vegetable needed to be taken care of their whole life. And the spiritual people were wondering how to chant to them or to somehow penetrate this kind of envelope of obscuration, you know, like an autistic child, you know, trying to break through. And Ananda and, and but nothing worked for years. And Ananda Mayama, who was so compassionate, if anything worked, she would have totally supported it. But she said, and this was like cut, cut through it all, I think it relieved a lot of the pressure around. She said, he came to this world in this life to rest. <laughs> like, let him rest. Leave him alone. <laughs> and this isn't the whole story. It's just one chapter. Yes? Saturday, um, uh, uh, Lama Suri Das was here Saturday. Saturday you spoke, kind of, you said, made a comment which sort of resonated with me because it reminds me of all the spiritual traditions I'm familiar with. Excuse me. Um, you said there, we were doing chanting, you said it's kind of like praying, only there's no one to pray to and there is no one praying also. And that brings up something in me that has puzzled me for years. And why is it that the idea that there's no self, which seems to be the basis for um, all things, and most of the great teachers I've heard or read about kind of send me back to that notion that there is really no self. Why is it so hard to not just be a no self? I mean, you hear it's just like, oh, just there just is nothing. There is no drama. There is no small self, big self. There's just really the reality is there is no, no self. And my sense of that in brief moments um, is, is um, beyond good or bad. Why is it that that isn't enough just to go to the no self directly rather than any practice? Because that's only one side of it. It's very one-sided. Uh, actually, the truth is there is a self, but the, what it said is there's no permanent, independent, concrete self entity. But there is a relative self, not separate, but connected with other things, and that's where we live. You know, if I'm hungry and you eat, it doesn't help my stomach. <laughs> Unless you're on a diet, right? Right, thank you. I'll take your advice, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful question um, because it speaks to, um, there's a kind of maturity that has to come in spiritual life which acknowledges both the universal and the personal. And in some ways in the beginning we can be quite idealistic and therefore say it's all empty or it's all divine, it's all grace, and therefore I don't have to worry about... Or it's the, all one. All one. I don't have to worry about the racism of the country or the, or the um, you know, hunger of, or, or of certain homeless people or whatever that's... I mean, it's all one. Um, and so there's a kind of spiritualization that we can fall into that denies also the respect for the, the personal that's equally true. Um, 
And in some way, even these last two questions are related because mm -hmm. you mentioned the quality of intimacy, how to have an intimate relationship. Um, uh, Zen Master Dogen um, said that to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. It's not a movement away from, but actually a freedom in form as well as outside of form. Uh, so there are these two dimensions that both need to be um, seen, felt, understood, lived in a place of awareness and freedom that's beyond self that you point to, um, and also the very personal and immediate um, life that we have with that same sense of respect and freedom. Please. Um, I've been wondering about this for a long time. It's the, about the distinction between desire and ambition and uh, will to do. Because hmm. um, when I first uh, heard, you know, was thinking about you know, the absence of desire, and I feel this in my work a lot, I find desire and ambition painful because I have the, I mean, I'm an actor, so it comes into play specifically. I have the desire to do the work very well, but then there's these things that are out of my control, right? Whether I get a particular thing and whether the world recognizes in a particular way. So I try to get rid of that. Um, <laughs> but then I wonder what motivates you to do well if you don't have desire and ambition. And if I find if I get to a very peaceful place without ambition, then I'm less likely to take the actions I need to take to sort of move things forward and do something good in the world. So it's a great, great question. Um, sometimes when I fly around to retreats and I sit next to someone on the airplane and they'll ask me what I do, and depending what mood I'm in, I'll say I'm in sales, you know, or I'll say I'm in theater in a certain way. Um, so I have a lot of respect for theater. Um, but also, um, the, the, it's a very deep question because there's a kind of confusion. These kind of questions, whether it's about the universal and personal in the way that was asked before, of self and no self, um, uh, this is really the question about desire. And it's not well translated into English because there's a common spiritual thing, oh, you're supposed to be without desire. Desire is the cause of suffering. And if you could get rid of your desire, then everything would be fine. And that's not a very accurate or um, clear or truthful way to look at the energy of life. Um, there is desire that's grasping, that creates suffering. That there's desire as will to do, you talked about it as jaitan. And I'm going to talk about it more next week, actually, which is a more um, neutral energy that can be associated with greed or grasping, but it also can be associated with creativity or love or compassion. Um, but even more than that, I'll go another step, there's a place for ambition. And I would say that as somebody who's had a fair amount. I mean, and I've been an ambitious person at certain times, an ambitious meditation teacher or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, that's the part where Blake said, if the fool would persist in their folly, they would become wise. Um, that it's also important not to deny that part of your, our humanity. I think we're here really to study the nature of mind and of happiness and suffering, not to immediately take a new ideology and condemn some part of ourselves, but to look at it and see in what way does, um, even more than ambition, in what way does our intention, our hope, our longing, um, our aspiration serve us, and in what way um, does it entangle us, where you go for the part and you're so uptight about whether I'm going to get it, it makes you unable to do it? In what way does it cause suffering? And that's the study itself. That's wise effort. Not to get rid of it, but to see it. I just want to add um, two things. One is, Jack, your point's very well taken that desire is such a weak translation of the crux of the matter about suffering. Uh, another translation we could say where we would see then it's not really desireless we seek. It's if we translate it as, um, like you said, grasping or fixation or resistance rather than being one with or going with a spontaneity and being the flow, you know, in the zone, you're, you're just the flow and so on. So there's no resistance. 
So there's also really no desire. There's no dualism. But also, I want to say, you know, more practically, if we can do the tantric flip, like the Aikido flip, and use the force of the opponent to flip it over, rather than pushing back against the opponent, what you said, ambition, desire, then the ambition and desire can, it becomes aspiration. And aspiration motivates and moves us wider or, or deeper or just forward whatever that means to us. So aspiration, as long as we have some energy or dualism or karma to work out, we, I think, can use that tantric principle of using that force to flip it over so that it becomes aspiration. We raise our sights, not just ego ambition, but sort of a, a bodhisattva aspiration, let's say. Or not just trying to get the part uh, and, and act because we're narcissists, but perhaps our art is a way of awakening ourselves and others, as art so often can be. Also, you know, there's something in this question which many of us perhaps overlook, which I like to say since we're talking about art, I write poetry a lot, and it's part of, important part of my spiritual practice. I think that we don't trust enough the well of creativity and spontaneity and the the effulgent, the womb of the emptiness. We're afraid to be empty ourselves out of attachment and desires because then, like you said, what will move us? Nothing will happen. We don't trust enough the, the creative, the womb of emptiness, the spontaneity, the joy of being that naturally overflows when we're not, when we get out of our own way, let's say. When we empty ourselves out a little so it can come through us. And that's more a natural mind. We could trust that more. Then there'll be plenty of doings, but they won't be ego's doings. We call that Buddha activity, actually. Buddha activity. Yes, sir. You asked the question, what is it that brings us to the practice and what brings us here? And one of the things that I recognize pretty clearly one of the Four Noble Truths is about attachment and aversion. I think it's all attachments. Attachment to wanting it to go away or attachment to wanting it to stay. And um, I kind of think of, I call it the abalone effect. You know, the more I suck on, the more I try to pull it off, the tighter the abalone gets. <laughs> and so, so what brings me to the practice and what brings me to my daily sitting practice is um, really transcending that sucking onto the rock effect. <laughs> <clears throat> the abalone likes it better that way too. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear the question in the back? He said that um, he was trying to respond to Surya Das's question about what brings one to practice motivation. He said in his daily practice, um, it, it comes from the second noble truth in the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha which is that suffering is caused by grasping or attachment, and he feels that attachment or aversion, which is another form of it, not wanting to feel, as a kind of um, abalone effect of holding the tight to the abalone, and the more tightly you hold on to the abalone, the more tightly it closes and won't open for you. Um, and feeling the pain of that, is that correct? And wanting to release it, did I get it mm -hmm. right? So, so becoming free... Of, of the so how to become free of that grasping, that attachment, that aversion? Hey, um, Are you going to answer? I hear, of course, everybody saying letting go all the time, but I, I think maybe we need to let come and go a little. Maybe let the sucking be also a little come and go, not suppress the grasping. In fact, maybe we could experiment with holding on as long as possible and see what happens. See if it doesn't go by itself. We start, or we hold on so hard we start to get rope burn because things are moving along. And then we sort of get the wisdom of experience that we learn by doing that way, rather than by theorizing. That's like renun renouncing the world too early, becoming a monk when you're 19. Mm -hmm. You don't have anything to renounce yet. 
now it's time. I'll share it with you. See how someone said that the first noble truth of the Buddha of suffering is is translated best as rope burn. That it comes from the things that change. Everything changes and it's our holding on. Um, another nice translation rather than letting go, because again, letting go has in it a kind of subtle trying to get rid of or aversion to our situation or experience, is letting be. Like the Beatles song, just let it be as it is. And then there's this spaciousness that says, yes, this is the way that it is and it's fine because there's some bigger knowing. Please. Uh, could you speak to uh, fear? Because I find that one of the major impediments that I have in the right action in many aspects of my life is the immediate fear that I have, the sort of sense of, of being attacked from the outside or having somebody have control over my life or possible losses of those kinds of actions. Could we speak to fear? Because a great ex- experience in his practice in his life is fear arising um, of, of, lo- of loss or having someone control over life or in, in doing in new situations, the fears of things that could happen. I think you should speak about it. You're more of a ferocious samurai. I'm a cowardly kind of lion. Um, I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> but I, I will say something about fear. Um, a couple things to start with, and then Suri might add to it. Um, again, I think a strategy that's that's wise, and really we've been talking about it all evening in terms of right or wise effort, is not so much to get rid of things, because then we have more aggression and aversion, saying this is no good and that's no good, improving ourselves. Um, so it's not fighting, um, but rather the strategy is one of a kind of opening or appreciation coming and going. And for, for fear, especially those of us that have a lot of fear, or fear is a part of frequent experience, um, it's more like befriending it, becoming a friend with fear, noticing um, the contractions in the body, noticing the stories that it tells. Because it tells, kind of, it tells the same story again and again. It's got the top tunes it turns on, and you know, top ten <coughs> tunes, there's the fear story again, and you, you hear it. Hmm? Real boring. It, well, it does, it gets boring in a way. Um, and so it becomes interesting to, to, to get a little bigger than that and say, all right, let me experience fear. There's a hole in the body, the breath stops a certain way, there's an emotional tone. And if you pay attention after a time, it's almost like you can become friends with it, so that it gets to the certain point where fear comes and you say, oh, fear again, I know you. Um, so that's one piece. There's a certain compassion in that. A second, just a second small thing to say uh, about fear is that um, I actually see it again to turn it a little in a slightly more positive light than that. And that is my experience of fear is that it comes when I'm moving beyond the, again, the small sense of self and what I need and so forth, to either trusting or letting go or changing in some way, even if it's a difficult change. And so I experience fear as the membrane between what I know and something new. And in that sense, it's got a little sign on it. When I feel fear, um, the translation is about to grow, right? (laughs) And I may not want to grow, right? I don't want to grow. But actually, when fear comes, it says, I'm this about to get bigger, about to experience something beyond what I've held on to. And so it becomes interesting then. Yeah, well said. I, I was just going to say exactly what Jack said. <laughs> I'm afraid you weren't, but... <laughs> but, but the way I was going to put it, it is exactly what you said about about to grow is... It's like a treasure map, and the fear, it's like X marks the spot. That's the fear. If you can hang there, dig there, whatever, that's where tre- the, most of the treasure could be, because that's such a big one. It drives us so unconsciously, it's hard to uproot. So really, fear is like X marks the spot. You say, what is your greatest fear? What are you afraid of? What would it take to be able to dig there, or just sit there on that spot, and be with it a little... Of course, we all know what the polls say about Americans' greatest fear, don't we? It's not the fear of death, by the way. 
It's a fear of public speaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, which introduces the notion of, as we Buddhists would say, the unreality of these emotions. I mean, it's a real emotion. You feel it. But fear of public speaking, just look at that. What a chimera, what a, what a, what a you know, bogey person that is. <laughs> yes? About ten years ago, I uh, became I, I became clean and sober, and uh, one of the things I've always wanted to ask is that at that time when I you know went through that process, I, I did a thing where I surrendered my will uh, to a higher power of my understanding, and it's sort of like it gave me this like focus of like you know how to like let go and surrender myself, and um, I've been a, a couple times I've told people that I'm involved in Spirit Rock and Buddhism. One time, this one guy said I was like committing spiritual suicide or something because you know Buddhism like believes in nothing. Or something. I don't even know if he really knew what he's talking about, but yeah, he did. I and you keep coming back. <laughs> That's rebirth. myself really kind of like clinging to like some kind of an image of some sort of God because you know life gets scary sometimes you know and so in a sense that's always right there when like if I was in a plane and we're going down you know it's I can see myself more like praying to a God than to try to let go and just you know, <laughs> great <laughs> wonderful question I think I want to say something radical here as a Buddhist teacher that in fact, and I really believe this, having taken a census of all the Buddhists in the world, most Buddhists, similar to you, pray to some kind of God. All the Tibetan Buddhists, if a car is you know, coming right at them, they're supposed to pray to their guru or to Buddha or say something, not, you know let go or just like go into the light <laughs> <laughs> and if you go to Burma or Thailand or places Laos I mean the main relationship people have they go to the temples to make offerings to express a certain generosity and to pray in a way they bow to the Buddha and say please help you know there's a, there's a tremendous devotional quality to something larger than oneself I also want to respect the 12-step the work that it sounds like you've done uh, because if someone works the steps in an in a honorable way, it's, it's an extraordinarily um, deep spiritual practice to take a, an unflinching moral inventory of one's life, to um, surrender to something um, greater than oneself, to, to live in a, in a clean or a, and sober way. Um, that's a very honorable and, and wonderful path of practice. And to include meditation as 11th step work really is, to find that way so that, that your life um, is in harmony with that deep knowing that we all have. Um, it's not that it's absent in us. The remarkable thing is that we all know it, we all have it, but how is it that we can bring that alive in our life? And when the plane goes down, whatever works, you know, to bring that alive. <laughs> I actually do metta when the plane, for me, uh, that's my practice when the, you know, the wings are shaking like that and everyone's holding I, and I, I just kind of like try to hold myself and the plane and everybody else in a kind of a com loving compassion meditation and that <sighs> settles me even while the plane goes down. <laughs> hmm? It worked. So far. <laughs> so far. Buddhism is kind of an eight-step pro recovery program, isn't it? <laughs> to recover your true nature. Right, recover your true nature, recover from recover yourself your true Buddha. to yeah. something else. Do we have time for a few more questions? Yeah, we have a couple more. No, a couple more. Please. Thank you for being here, Lovely Well, last time you were here, um, 
about a year, uh, almost two years ago, I asked how to work with um, getting more of an acceptance of a non-dualistic state. And you answered to me, which almost floored me, was to go forward to those things that I had resistance and fear of, and to um, move away from those things that I desired and, and clung to. And in that process, I've come to notice that, that there's a striving in that. And I wonder if there's a recommended or a traditional um, way that one becomes attuned to noticing that striving and also or noticing when one is more in that relaxed state of, of flowing with things. It's called meditation. <laughs> meditation is not really something to do, it's something to be. But in the beginning we learn it like a technique to do to get more used to being. We try to concentrate, we try to relax, we strive to you know, learn to sit perhaps longer or something. But it, it gets deeper than that and the striving goes out of it and we get more to things like called choiceless awareness, just sitting. These are all technical Buddhist terms. <laughs> Non-meditation as we say in Tibetan and so on. That doesn't mean you have to do it by sitting either. There's a way of finding that, you know, letting go in, in any moment of life. What do you think about that, Jack? Because that relates to wise effort. Well, I, I want to give an illustration about letting go. There's one way in which letting go is, is kind of like this, where you, these are my $10 longs and reading glasses, um, in which it's just opening your hand and letting go. But there's a danger with that kind of letting go, again, sort of circling back, because there's some sense of, well, it's sticky, I don't want it, I don't like, get rid of it. And so maybe a, a different image is that. Because you asked about striving. With this one, you're trying to get rid of something. Maybe a different image is that. And it can be there, or it cannot be there. And it's Let just, it it's the open-handedness of the Buddha. Um, there's a uh, isn't there a nice Tibetan saying about Buddha in the palm of your hand or something mm -hmm. like that? That's a common Tibetan Buddhist phrase, that it's, it's right there, not grasped and not resisted. And in some way, the dance of spiritual life, um, and it is like a dance, it's like having a dance partner or something, and then you notice you're really out of rhythm and you're stepping on his or her toes and you know you're struggling in some way or you had you had a kind of nice dance for a while but then it's gotten tight and you realize oh I'm not in rhythm again and maybe you stop and breathe or change your rhythm and wise effort isn't one thing any more than the wise effort to ride a bicycle as well you gotta stay in the center no one ever stays in the center on the bicycle if you watch they're always kind of moving from one side to another and and finding balance in this moment, and in this moment, and in this moment. So there's more, it's more like an art or a dance. It breathes, it's alive, and in some way that's an invitation to live in that reality of change. It's nine, so I think we probably should make that the, the, the last question. Um, I have just a couple of things to say, and then if uh, Suri, if you have anything. The first is to thank you for coming a real appreciation um, for that and um, and also thank you for your support um, in coming to Spirit Rock and paying for the class which helps us keep things going and so forth um, and uh, allows this to continue um, as many of you know but not everyone perhaps we're in the middle of building seven buildings for a um, that will open this summer for a year-round uh, silent retreat center so that there will be the day-longs and classes and all the things that we have now. But the retreats that we've been renting facilities in other parts of the state and country for, many will now happen here starting in July. And then while we sit and have our discussions and so forth, there'll be a hundred people over there in silence sitting and walking and doing that dimension of practice. And it's really kind of uh, a balance time to breathe in and be still and then time to breathe out and go back into the world and find that balance or that dance. So thank you for participating in it and thanks for your support um, in all kinds of ways. Um, I'll be here doing the talk next week and then I go on my own personal retreat for a couple of weeks and so I think Guy Armstrong and uh, Lama uh, Paulden, um, Caroline Wood, who's a, a, an American a uh, woman living in San Anselmo, who's also a Lama, will be doing 
Monday nights in a few weeks from now. And I want to thank you, Surya, for coming both this weekend and teaching and tonight, and what a great pleasure. Anything? Yes, um, as a final uh, last will and testament kind of secret teaching of Tibet, I'd like to suggest you make an effort to see the movie Kundun. It's very, very moving. It's the most spiritual movie I think I've ever seen, not because it's about the Dalai Lama, but it's very heart-opening. It's very slow somehow. It won't be in the theaters very long. It's not too commercial. So make an effort to see it. It's very, very beautiful. Even the last words of the film, as the Dalai Lama crosses the border into India, after walking, walking out of the Himalayas, he says something like, I am just a reflection of the Buddha. When you are good, you are just like me. When you are good, you are a reflection of me, he's saying, meaning, you know, this inseparability. This, we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to actualize that. So I think Kundun is really something beautiful worth seeing. So please... Before we go, let's just chant one simple sound, ah, which is the sound of opening or letting go, just to get a kind of communal voice in here, and then, then we'll leave for the evening. Ah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.